Welcome to He is God and I am not, a podcast devoted to equipping saints with the tools needed to defend their faith. Our Twitter handle is at He is God, I am not. My name is JP and I'm your host, so let's get started. Welcome to today's episode of He is God and I am not. I remember as my children were growing up, they would pepper me with questions as their young mind began developing an awareness of the world around them. You know the typical questions like, why is the sky blue? What makes the rain fall? Or if you have a child like my oldest son, he asked me once, Daddy, why is it when you increase the pressure when pushing in the stopper it results in more negative pressure on the other side of the stopper, making it harder to pull the stopper out? Yeah, he asked that when he was about four years old, some form of that question to that effect. And when he asked me that, I knew I was in trouble with him right then, by the way. But <laughs> seriously, um, those are the kinds of questions kids ask, except for the last one, of course. But seriously, when you think of deep questions, what kinds of questions enter your mind. I would dare say there is one question people ask, almost universally. It does not matter the background, the race, the creed, nationality, religious affiliation, or even non-affiliation. Even atheists ask this question. And that question is, does God exist? Sometimes it is phrased, how can I know God exists? Earnest people of all types of belief ask this question. It doesn't matter if these people are earnest in their belief of a false god, multiple false gods, the one true god, or no god at all. They are still earnest in their pursuit of an answer to that question. So today we will cover the third catechism from Keech that addresses this question. Here's how the catechism reads. Question three, how do we know there is a god? The answer, the light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do effectually reveal him unto us for our salvation. Henny has a string of scriptures that we'll read to you in a moment. Before we dive into the catechism question and answer today, I want us to remind ourselves of the first two catechisms we covered in our previous episode. Do you remember them? I'll give you a moment to think about it. The first one was, who is the first and best of beings? God is the first and best of beings. Secondly, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When we discussed these last week, while I really didn't uh, bring this up, I did find it interesting that Keech and Colin took the same approach as scripture when it comes to proving the existence of God. When they wrote out the catechism, and I'm saying they, Keech either wrote it and edited it, or he only edited Collins. So I'm saying Keech and Collins. But when they wrote the catechism, the answer that they provide in this, in the catechism last week, it takes the same approach as scripture when it comes to proving the existence of God. Ironically, the catechism does not try to prove God exists. The Bible itself does not try to prove God exists, though it does provide ample evidence. Let me explain what I mean by this. 
The Bible starts off in Genesis 1-1 with the statement, In the beginning God. It presupposes God's existence and just goes from there. John 1-1 does the same thing. It presupposes the existence of the Word, Jesus Christ, in the beginning with God. And it moves on for the next 13 verses, from verses 1-14, through 14, set of verses, 13 verses, with no apology no excuses, and just takes the fact of Jesus' pre-existence and subsequent incarnation as a given. It just takes it as a given. does not try to prove it to the naysayers. And I think we as believers would do well to learn from that. One of my passions is apologetics, which is the defense of the gospel. It comes from the Greek word apologia, and hence we get apologetics. We're not saying we're sorry for the gospel. We're giving a defense of the gospel. I absolutely love defending the faith to people who do not know Christ. I don't do it to prove them wrong. If I did, that is a selfish, prideful, fleshly motive. My motive should be to disclose and unveil the matchless beauty and grace of Jesus Christ as he took God's wrath, rightfully designated upon sinners, upon himself. So God's wrath was imputed upon his son on our behalf. That should be our motive to share that story. However, now I'm going to give you a very transparent image of myself. I will be the very first one to admit that in my zeal to share or defend the gospel, I often come out of the gate with both guns blazing, attacking every argument with the ferocity of a sledgehammer on a wedge as if I was trying to split a green hickory log. And to be honest, my wife has helped me Temper that to some degree, and that is a character flaw of mine, where I just want to say, this is the truth. I'm going to just bang it into your head, and you are going to understand what I'm telling you. I should emulate the Bible instead. I myself cannot impart belief or faith upon someone for whom God had not opened their eyes. At the same time, I must pray that the words I speak are seasoned with grace so as not to bring a reproach to the name of Christ. Because to God I know, he's not arrogant, he's not prideful, or any of those other nasty things that so many people, including myself, that claim to know him are. I am arrogant and prideful and all those other nasty things that I say that Jesus has redeemed me from. Thank God he has redeemed me and gave me a standing of righteousness. But in this flesh, I won't be perfect till I get to heaven, folks. And I need to understand that when I'm sharing the gospel with people. Now, I'm still a flawed human being. It's going to be God that brings people to belief, despite the evidence we might bring. So having said all that, if we're not to be sledgehammers, but yet we're still to be fearless in our declaration and defense of the God of the universe, how do we do that? How do we balance the two? How do we help people know there is a God. That brings us back to the next catechism that we just read to you. How do we know there is a God? The light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do effectually reveal him unto us for our salvation. The first scripture, well, let me say this before we get into the scripture. I want to go back to catechism answer itself. I find the very first part of the answer so intriguing. The light of nature in man and the works of God. So what does that mean, the light of nature? 
Think about this. Just like the sun shines on creation and it revealed the character of the earth and sky, and it shines and it revealed the detail, the colors, the depth, the width by light and shadow, even so does the light of nature, the inward conscience, reveal to man that God exists. To reject the idea of God, to deny his existence, is to go against the way man was created. If I may say it is completely unnatural to not believe in God or to at least believe in some greater power than oneself. Because whether you like it or not, God designed you to believe in order to have fellowship with him. And we'll get into this later. But when man fell from his perfect state with God, and when I say later, I mean in a different catechism. When man fell from his perfect state with God, the nature of man was corrupted and defiled, and the inclination to worship was twisted by sinful rebellion. And in the place of that rightful and righteous worship, there arose false worship of God, worship of false gods, or no worship at all. Nevertheless, there remains a light within man that something greater than him exists, something bigger, something other, as we spoke of last time. And that is the light of nature and man. It is the spot God himself carved in the heart and brain of man to be wired for worship. So in addition to the light of nature and man, the works of God declare plainly that there is God. What are those works? There is scripture provided in this third catechism. The first is Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So that's a New Testament reference. In the Psalms, we read Psalm 19, 1-2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day utters speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 2 Timothy 3.15 And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 21-24 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Finally, the last reference given in this catechism is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For his Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now, in the scriptures we just read, it's important to understand that God has revealed himself in two ways. Through general and special revelation. And that is the way this catechism is laid out. The first section of verses is general revelation. The second is special revelation. You say, JP, what is the difference? General revelation is that revelation the psalmist spoke of in which the heavens declare God's existence. It's on display for all of man to see. 
However, special revelation is the intimate knowledge that comes not from the observation of nature and man understanding that God exists, but rather it is God revealed to people through his scripture with the intended and accomplished result of God's people being brought to the knowledge of himself. By that knowledge of himself, I do not mean the mere knowledge of his existence, but an incredible, intimate, personal relationship with the God of heaven. This is known as salvation, and that is what special revelation results in. Let's review the scriptures in the catechism that deal with general revelation again. So we're going to go back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Isn't that a lot of words? So, let's talk about this. In verse 18, it tells us that God's wrath is revealed on sinful man who suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness. In other words, their unrighteous deeds and behavior obscure and suppress his truth from coming to fruition in their hearts. Now, he says in verse 19, what, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. In other words, what may be known in general revelation through the observation of nature is made self-evident. It is manifested in them because God has shown it to them. God is saying through general revelation of nature, here is your proof. Here it is. What more do you want? What makes more sense to explain what it is you see? An accident of nature or a designer? God is saying that through general revelation. And he is providing the evidence of himself for everyone to see. And something else you need to understand. People say, well, I wish God would just reveal himself to us. Listen to verse 20 and what it says, and it addresses that statement. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead are there without excuse. Let it be known that God has never hidden his existence from humanity. It says in verse 20 that his attributes are clearly seen. To say otherwise is to call God a liar. God has said, I have clearly shown you who I am through general revelation. If that's not enough, then that is your rebellion at work to reject what I am declaring to you through my creation. Now I want to say this, those who deny his existence, whether they wish to admit it or not, they understand and know who God is. To deny God's existence is an act of rebellion. It is a rejection of clear evidence. That is why I say, no amount of evidence, no matter how solid the evidence is or how well it is presented, will convince an atheist of his error. No matter how well presented, it will not convince someone of another religion, say Hinduism, of their error, of their pantheon of God that they worship. It is because the evidence is so abundant that man is without excuse for denying the existence of God. It takes a work of God to change such hearts. And I'm going to tell you, if you are a believer in Christ and you have dear ones that you know are not born again, you will not persuade them by constantly badgering and hammering them. Present the evidence, pray for their soul, and as they come to you, have a ready defense of the gospel, but do not repel them with an 
arrogant presentation of the gospel and don't try to win them by outsmarting them and outwitting them. That doesn't do anything but make you an arrogant jerk. We need to let the Holy Spirit of God reign in our hearts so that we can present the evidence and let the Holy Spirit soften their heart. That is how you present the gospel. And that's how you present general revelation and special revelation. Let's continue. Psalm 19, 1 through 2. Continuing with uh, general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, night to night reveals knowledge. When the psalmist wrote this, he too proceeded with the existence of God as a given, with no qualifiers. This statement affirmed the existence of God with no theological discourse, no proof, no scientific evidence. The existence of God is presented as a presupposed fact. And this is where we get the word presuppositional. When we use the term presuppositional beliefs or presuppositional apologetics, that's what we mean. We presuppose certain things to be true based on uh, the evidence we've been presented, the evidence that we've investigated and found to be true. So we move forward from that. And when we move forward from there with that framework in mind, we do the same thing the psalmist is doing. He said that the heaven declared the glory of God. Now there are two actions expressed in these two verses. The heaven declare his glory, the firmament shows his handiwork. So what's the significance of these two phrases? So the Hebrew word for heavens is the sky, the atmosphere, the abode of the stars, the moon, the planets, and the universe. So it's saying that the heaven, the stars, the moon, and the planets declare. Now, this can be used, the word declare in Hebrew can be used as a verb or a noun. It can be used to count exactly or to talk or to enumerate as an accountant, to scribe, to be a secretary, to be a learned man, uh, to be a scribe, I should say, a secretary or a learned man. And I'm going to collate these into a sentence for you in just a moment. So the glory of God is the glory, the honor, his abundant riches, his dignity, his reputation, his renown. That is the glory of God. That's what that word means. So the first part of this psalm, the heaven declare the glory of God. The sky, the atmosphere, the abode of the stars, the moon, the planet, the universe, they count out and give an exact count and provide as an accountant the total sum of the glory and honor and the abundant riches and dignity, reputation, and renown of God. Isn't that a mouthful? That's what the heavens do. The heavens give a full account of the glory of God. I was reading just today, and this was not planned. It just came up on my Facebook page. A friend of mine, uh, Ken, sent this to me, or actually posted on his uh, page. Um, and I had seen this before, but I didn't really realize the count of the stars. They trained Hubble, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope into a uh, blank patch of night sky, one-tenth the size of the moon, and left it there, I think, for four days. I may be mistaken in the days, but I think they just left it in one stationary position for four days and then um, processed the images that were received on that stationary spot for four days. And what looked to be a blank sky was a patch of white dots. Each white dot was not a star, but a galaxy. Untold trillions of stars. And it is the most amazing, awe-inspiring, and makes me feel insignificant Psalm 8 feeling I've ever had. And 
to see that those stars give an account that the God that saved me made those stars, that gives an account of his glory, of just who he is. And likewise, in the second part of Psalm 119, um, verse 2, uh, or pardon me, verse 1, the firmament shows his handiwork, the sky. So the night sky in the first part, the day sky, explains the work of his hands and fingers, the intimacy of his work in creation. So we see then that general revelation points the way for man to see that God exists. General revelation itself, the mere fact that God is saying, hey, here I am, I exist, that in and of itself is an act of grace on God's part. And as amazing as general revelation is, where he declares to all humanity who he is, the specific grace he imparts to those who have been called to Jesus is even more incredible. That is a review of general revelation and how it reveals the existence of God. We're going to stop there. We're going to treat this as part A. So this is going to be part A of this episode. And part B will be special revelation. So that's what we'll be discussing. Until then, let us all praise God that he is God, we are not. And let us all be thankful for that. Thank you.